Hi, this is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we have Lisa Gable, CEO of Food Allergy Research and Education with us, and we're going to be speaking about food allergies. But first, if you're listening to us via YouTube, we ask that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with our latest content and to hit the like button if you enjoyed this one in particular. So this week is National Food Allergy Awareness Week, and we thought it would be a good time to bring on an expert in food allergies. So we have Lisa Gable, the CEO of Food Allergy Research and Education, better known as FAIR, with us. And I'll start off by asking how you're doing today, Lisa. I'm doing great, and I really appreciate being invited. Well, that's great. We're really happy to have you on the show. I think a useful place to start for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the scope of the issue is just overall numbers. Can you share roughly how many people in the U.S. contend with a food allergy? 32 million Americans suffer from life-threatening food allergies. That's 5.6 million children, one out of every 13 children, which basically means two kids in every classroom. Every three minutes, a food allergy sends somebody to the emergency room, and over a 10-year period, we saw a 400% increase in anaphylactic food reactions. So it's a growing issue and one that we're really trying to address uh, through partnerships with the food and beverage industry. So I think that gives people an idea of the scope of the issue. How many specific food allergens are there, and which are the most prevalent? Well, the FDA recognizes eight allergens, and and everybody needs to remember that allergens are complex proteins. They include peanut, milk, shellfish, tree nut, egg, thin fish, wheat, and soy. But FAIR is actually advocating also for the addition of sesame to become the ninth allergen, and we'll talk about uh, legislation that we have on the Hill in order to make that happen. Now, jumping back to that 400% increase you cited earlier, on your webpage, I saw there was a 377% increase in anaphylactic food reactions between 2007 and 2016. What happened over the course of that decade? Is this a case of better diagnostics or something else driving the increase? You know, there are a couple of different theories as to what's driving the increase. Uh, One is that around the 1998 time period where we really saw this shooting forward amongst children in particular is that parents have been told not to feed the allergens to uh, their children. And what we've learned is that's actually the wrong information uh, that uh, to give to someone. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, FAIR launched a new initiative called Babies First, and it's focused on how to uh, introduce a variety of foods to infants, including those proteins that can trigger allergies that are better known as allergens. The second thing that we we saw happening is what's called the hygiene theory. And the hygiene theory is the fact that we we started cleaning things very well. We had we introduced uh, hand cleaning sanitizer products. We started cleaning our our surfaces quite extensively. And the question is, if if children weren't building the necessary tolerances that they needed, and then the third area is really one where this is a place I'd love to see us delve into the science and really work closely with the food and beverage industry. And that's the gut microbiome research. We've seen not only the rise of food allergies, but also the rise of food sensitivities, food intolerances, celiac disease. And the question is, why are all these things happening? What's going on with our gut? And what is it about the way that we're processing this food that's making us uh, start to develop these sensitivities in life-threatening food allergies? So I find that kind of interesting that it's not just food allergies, but also food sensitivities. Is there a reason behind the increase for food sensitivities as well, or is that something we still need more data on? 
it's really that the science needs to be played out. Uh, we are going to be announcing some research in the next couple of weeks, so keep your eyes and ears open, uh, that will go into detail related to the numbers of people with food sensitivities, food intolerances, uh, the food allergy community, and how they uh, interact with uh, their consumer journey. Uh, so we'll, we'll give you a, a sneak peek into that uh, in a few weeks and look forward to being able to talk about it. Uh, but the bottom line is the numbers are increasing. We all know people who are suffering uh, intolerances. Dairy is talked about quite a bit. So what's, what's going on? What's going on with our gut? And how do we resolve that issue? And I think it's a great place for us all to invest in the science to figure out what the problem is. So we'll keep an eye out for that information, and we'll definitely share it among our channels, including our daily newsletter, Today in Food. Now, in Today in Food, we regularly report on food recalls, and oftentimes we find these to be spurred by undeclared allergens. So how much of a risk do those with a food allergy face when they're buying and consuming a product containing an undeclared allergen? Well, one thing to know is that the food allergy families suffer from a great deal of anxiety. And so they put a heavy amount of trust into the food labels and they read the food labels actually for a long period of time. And I know that many of your companies I've spoken with uh, through FARP and other types of engagement talk about the number of calls to the 800 number. Uh, you really have food uh, fear driving this. And the thing to know as to why that fear exists, because if someone has accidental ingestion of an allergen, they immediately have to administer epinephrine call 911 and seek emergency care. Uh, this is not a rare occurrence. As we just talked about, you saw a, a 377 increase in people visiting um, and the emergency room and having that type of medical care. And so understanding that this is a very real issue, that people have a very short period of time in which to react to the issue, uh, that is one reason why we, we appreciate the work that you're doing to highlight uh, the fact that there might be some cross-contamination or an undeclared allergen that's been uh, put into the product. So thank you for that. Well, that's not a problem. We definitely appreciate the opportunity to have you on the show. Uh, regarding federal agencies or even those at the state level, what can government do to better prevent these kinds of allergic reactions from happening? Well, we're, we're already through FISMA. You've, we've got some fairly uh, good structures and systems in place. Uh, and I recognize that the, the large companies spend an inordinate amount of money on cleaning production lines and things like that. But we also recognize that accidents happen. And so I think it's a matter of, of building the awareness, trying to figure out why those accidents occur, what it might be within the food safety protocols that didn't catch something from happening. And, and at this stage of the game, it's, it's implementation of the rules and close adherence to the rules as opposed to telling people that they have to do yet something else. It's an accident. The question is, why did it happen? And then uh, how do we work with uh, using digital platforms, which you're doing and that we're using, uh, to even build greater awareness as to uh, when one of those situations occur? So that flows into my second question on this topic, which is what could the food industry at large do and what steps can they take to better address the rise in food allergies? Well, they're taking the steps that they need to take, which is that you have, have FARP uh, working very closely with, with the food allergy community, of food allergy community immediately releasing that information into the digital realm. Companies should identify ways to release that information. And also, um, you know, as in any crisis, it's important for the company to be very transparent 
explain what happened and explain how they're going to fix it to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And so I, I think the protocols are there, the way in which those protocols are communicated, how quickly they're communicated into the system, making sure that, uh, that it is spread far and wide. I will tell you that when we receive those alerts and we get them into digital, they are our highest performing digital uh, engagements uh, because this is an area of such concern. So I, I think through the numbers alone, we're seeing that people look for this, they know where to find the information. Uh, but I think companies, as in any crisis, you need to be extremely transparent about what happened. And what we'd really love to do is work with food and beverage companies to, to help explain the, the food manufacturing and safety processes uh, to the consumer and really help the consumer have a better understanding as to how you manage these things internally. And I think that's going to build the trust that's so necessary. So we'll change gears a little bit here and focus on the coronavirus, which is the topic that we can't seem to escape these days. So in connection with the coronavirus, are people with food allergies finding it difficult to find, say, a product made without milk, wheat, or some other allergen while they're in the grocery store? Absolutely. It has been a huge issue. And I think what it, what it shines a light on is that COVID is shining a light on the fact that it is challenging for someone with allergies, particularly people with multiple allergies, to identify substitutions that, that they have access to that are affordable and that will actually meet their health needs. And so where we have a situation where I know that I have not been in a grocery store since March 12th, um, and I go and I, I pick up my, I go online and I enter in my order and I go to the, the grocery store and I pop up in my trunk and somebody puts the food in. Well. I look at the food and half of my order is not there, but you can't have people in the grocery store. They're not comfortable making substitutions in large part because of this issue around allergies. And so what it's demonstrated are two things. One is that we need to fix the, uh, the nomenclature that is in all the digital platforms as people become heavily reliant on digital platforms for ordering their food during this time period. Secondarily is recognizing uh, that there is an issue around substitution as, as as, as food options become more limited, uh, people with life-threatening food allergies are really having to go far and wide to find the food that they can feed their kids. I think the other element of this is with certain allergens in particular, uh, it's not just that the individual can't eat the allergen, but entire families are avoiding buying the allergen. So dairy is an example. When you have somebody with a, with a dairy allergy, especially a small child, there are many families that the entire family will avoid dairy because they're so worried about some form of accidental ingestion or contact that's going to cause an allergic reaction for their loved one. So it's not only affecting the individual themselves, but it is affecting the entire family. And so we look forward to working with the food companies to, to improve the labeling, improve the uh, nomenclature, make sure it's standardized across every form of, of communication that exists, and uh, that we comprehensively provide that information because people are having to go to multiple sources. So I'd like to pivot back to another item we were speaking about briefly earlier, and that would be treatment for those with a food allergy. I know that FDA approved the medication for those with a peanut allergy earlier this year. Can you shed a little bit of light on how that product actually works? It's all built off the same study, which is called the LEAP study, that showed 80% uh, reduction in peanut food allergies in high-risk infants. These are infants with asthma, uh, eczema when they were introducing small amounts of the peanut to the child at a young age. Uh, we're also, a lot of studies are showing similar promise for egg, and we think that uh, that the science right now believes that uh, introducing allergens at a young age, as we pointed out, is going to be a good thing. So what A-Immune did with palforzia 
is that it's a pharmaceutical grade peanut dust in a capsule form that provides the patient with increasingly larger doses of the allergen. And it's not aimed at having someone be able to necessarily sit down and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But what it does is it protects the child and the young adult from accidental ingestion and then also as they move into their life. And so when you were talking about uh, product recalls, let's say there was a product recall because you you had something in a um, in a transportation vehicle that was was carrying a product that had an allergen and so that the, some of the dust from that got into the food or you had cross-contamination on the line. What this does is it protects that individual from, in some cases, what may be a fairly modest, minimal amount of, of the allergen being introduced into the diet, which can still cause a severe reaction. It takes that fear and risk out of, uh, of, the, of the equation. Um, there's another product that the FDA is uh, reviewing right now because of COVID, uh, we're not seeing, we don't have a, a clear timeline on, on the timelines related to approval of that product, uh, but that's DBB's product, which is a patch. And again, it goes with the same concept as the LEAP study, uh, which is that you put the patch in the skin and then it starts to absorb incremental amounts of the allergen. Sorry, so those would both be for peanuts, correct? Both are for peanuts. The decision for uh, both companies was to move forward with peanut. Peanut was the basis of the LEAP study. And secondarily, it is uh, has the, the highest percentage of, of individuals who have a severe allergic reaction. Um, but we do think that these companies are, are looking at alternatives with egg and dairy and some of the other um, highly allergic um, situations. So I know that FAIR has been supporting the Food Allergy Safety Treatment Education and Research Act, better known as FASTER, to both improve the safety of those in the food allergy community and to expand the research necessary to find new treatments. Can you give us a little background on your efforts and the purpose of the legislation? Sure. The legislation was introduced on the House side, and it already has uh, over, I believe, 87 um, uh, co-sponsors. Uh, there's also similar legislation that has been introduced in the Senate side. It was introduced uh, around March 12th, right before things started shutting down. Um, the, the fast track, uh, what we tried to do is, is we wanted a bipartisan position. And so we, we really made this a, a very thin bill uh, that we would get at critical issues. One of those critical issues is uh, inter uh, introducing sesame as the ninth allergen uh, that would be recognized by the FDA so it, that it can be declared and should be declared. Um, also, uh, the looking at uh, food allergy research funding and uh, some of the research that's necessary for the government to do um, in order for us to be able to maximize the investment of these high net worth donors uh, who are putting into our research. Part of our goal is that we're able to reduce time to market uh, once that research turns into a therapy and gets approval for the FDA. So the bill looks at, at some issues around that. There's some other political issues that we're looking at, like uh, school-based allergies and asthma management program, which is H.R. 2468, uh, as well as issues around airplanes. Uh, one interesting thing is, is that the issue with airplanes has been the ability of the family to pre-board and wipe down their seats. Uh, with COVID, we, we are seeing that uh, the cleanliness and the, the residue being eliminated from surfaces is something that's job one. So that actually does have a benefit for food allergy families who've had to take on that burden themselves to do that extra cleaning. So I think that will about wrap it up this week. I want to thank you for your time today, Lisa. Where can Food Institute listeners go to learn more about your organization and your efforts? 
You can go to foodallergy.org, and also I'd recommend signing up for our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and Twitter so that you can get the latest information and know the hottest issues that the food allergy community is dealing with. But foodallergy.org is your primary location to find information on research, on education, as well as on our advocacy efforts. So we'll definitely share a link to FAIR's website in the description of this episode. That way you can take a look at all the information Lisa was talking about yourself. And with that, I think we'll close out this week's edition of the Food Institute podcast. If you like what you heard, please like the video. If you'd like to learn more, please take a look at the links in our description to see what the Food Institute and membership could do for your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. 